Well, if uh, you've probably had time to turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're back in chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 13. It's a short passage this morning. I'm going to read for us verses 13 through 16. I'll pray, and then we'll dive into the message this morning. So the Bible says this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is why we constantly thank God. Because when, we, when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for you, but I do thank you for your word and, and the, this book that we have, this revelation of yourself that we get to dig into whenever we want throughout the week. We get to gather here on Sundays and, and dive into it a little bit deeper and learn more about you and about the people that you've used in history to further the gospel. Lord, I thank you for the church in Thessalonica that remains steadfast in the face of persecution. Thank you for people like Paul, for Silvanus, and for Timothy, Lord, and their faithfulness. And so, Lord, as we dig into this letter from Paul to that church, and we, we examine these few verses this morning, I pray first and foremost that you would rid ourselves and our minds of any distractions. God, I pray that we would center our hearts and our minds and our focus around your word, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak directly to us. Remove me from this stage and allow your spirit to just work and to convict and to change lives, and we ultimately want to give you all praise, glory, and honor where it's due. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I mentioned before, I am the student ministry pastor here, and for the last nine weeks or so, I'm going to give you a little bit of a glimpse of what it is that youth have have been doing on Monday nights, um, other than eating pizza and killing each other with dodgeballs and things like that. Uh, we do get into the word and we're in it. Like you ask any of the youth kids, don't ask them right now because I'm preaching, but maybe after the service, if you see a youth kid, like, hey, what have you been learning about? Hopefully they're taking notes now if they can't remember because I'm gonna go through some of the stuff we've been learning. Uh, but we've been learning about the Bible. We've been learning about this book that we have And we've covered a lot of material, and we've answered questions such as, what is the Bible? Why was it written? What is it about? What does the Bible teach us? And in the past couple weeks, we've even dug into the questions, how do you read the Bible? It's been great, honestly. Throughout those lessons, we've learned a lot. Some weeks, I even walk away like I've just been fire-hosed by, like, really, really good material. But it's a lot. But some of what we've learned is this, is that God reveals himself in two primary ways. He reveals himself to us, his creation, in two primary ways. General, which is through creation itself. And then also special revelation, which is the word of God, which is the scriptures, Not only that, that God revealing himself tells us that he is a gracious creator, that he does not want to keep himself separate from his creation. He wants to make himself known. We've learned that the Bible is one story written ultimately for God's glory. 
and with Jesus Christ as the main focal point of the scriptures. We've learned that there is a four-part framework of scripture, that being creation, the fall, redemption, and then ultimately restoration when he returns again. We've learned that the Bible, the word of God, his special revelation is inerrant. It's without error. It's infallible. It's without fail. It's true. It will accomplish what it sets out to do. We've learned that it is infinite, for God himself is infinite, therefore his word remains forever. And we've also learned that it is inspired. It's God-breathed. We've understood that the Bible is therefore sufficient. It's enough. It offers us everything we need to know, first and foremost, about salvation, which is wonderful, but also godly living. How, how do we live out our lives then once we've come to accept Jesus Christ? Therefore, when we read the Bible, we ought to approach it, we've learned, in three specific ways. Supernaturally or prayerfully, we ought to pray to the infinite God when we come to his infinite word as finite human beings so that we can understand what it is that he's trying to communicate to us. So prayerfully, humbly, and also submissively, we ought to submit to God's word and what it is that it's trying to communicate to us. We've even begun the process of doing biblical hermeneutics. So that's a fancy word for just interpreting passages, using context and other helpful tools. It's been a lot of fun. And let me tell you something. The kids are not only engaged with the material, but they're getting it. And they're able to reciprocate back to me and tell me all of what I just laid out for you. It's awesome stuff. So again... Monday's 6.30 to 8.30. Bring your kid out. Okay. But if the above, everything that I just said is true and the word of God is our authority, we ought to treat it as such. We have to remember that the Bible ultimately points us to Jesus Christ and that reconciliation and eternal life with our creator is only possible through belief in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Although we've been going through more and a more academic approach on Monday nights, one of the things that we continually seem to circle back to is that inspiration of God. The fact that this, this book that we have is God-breathed. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this. Peter says, above all, you know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this message that we have, this same message that Paul had to the church in Thessalonica, this message that we ought to proclaim the gospel, it's been breathed out by our creator carried along by the Holy Spirit in order that we might have a better understanding of the, the creator of the universe and his plans, his purposes, and his ways. It's the word of God. Praise God for that. And so with that being said, I want to point out point number one this morning, if you're taking notes, that the word of God is just that. The word of God, not merely a human message. So the word of God is just that, the word of God, not merely a human message. Look back at verse 13 with me. The Bible says, this is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you 
who believe. So what made Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the ones writing this letter to this church, what made them so grateful? Was it simply the conduct of the Thessalonian church? Was it their actions? If we, if we read that first verse, verse 13, we understand that ultimately, Paul is not thankful to the Thessalonians. No, he's thankful to God. Why? Because of the work of the word of God in their lives. Because he knows that the message of the gospel has transformed them. Okay, remember, these are people that Paul has received word about from other believers throughout the region. We learned about that on week two, I think. Paul says in the beginning of his letter, if you have your Bible open, you want to turn back to to chapter one, you can. This isn't going to be on the screen. But Paul says in the beginning of his letter that they welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they became an example then to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord rang out from them, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that their faith in God had gone out. So Paul states that it was reported to him what kind of reception he had from these believers in Thessalonica, how they turned from God or turned turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and then they're waiting for his son to return from heaven once again. This is the transforming power of the gospel. This is the life-changing work of the word of God. Paul understands that it's nothing that he did or said. We learned last week that Paul understood his place in all of this. Uh, Earlier in this chapter, he admits that the three of them writing this letter were approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So to entrust something is to assign the responsibility for doing something to something or someone else. So they were given something to do or to say that was not from them. Therefore, they spoke not to please people, remember last week, but rather God who examines their hearts They did not use flattering speech or have greedy motives, nor did they seek glory from people. Why? Because this message is not from them. So listen, if you want to spruce up or clean up or doll up or pithy up a message or a point in an argument that you're trying to get people to understand, that's fine. We do it all the time. Good luck. Good luck with that. Well, I was going to go into exam. (laughs) I wrote this down. I was going to try to convince people. I try to convince people all the time that football is not what you all think of football as. Okay, you all, when you think of football, you think of what I consider hand egg. Okay, the sport where they don't really use their feet that often. If anything, they use their hands more often. So why is it called football in America when they don't use their feet? Okay, it is true. Amen. Praise the Lord. But here's the thing. When I'm trying to make an argument... I'll do whatever I can to convince you that soccer or football is the real football. And and I'll do that to the best of my ability. And I'll try to explain that it's one of the greatest sports in the world. And I'll try to clean it up and, and make it presentable and wrap it in a neat little bow and present it to you. But here's the thing. That's all well and good to do with your own thoughts and your own opinions and messages. I'm not arguing against that. But hear me out. Don't do that with the gospel. Matter of fact, we don't need to do that with the gospel. 
God doesn't need our help to clean up the gospel message. The gospel doesn't need human reasoning or witty sayings. Just speak with grace and with boldness what you know to be true and evident in your life about the gospel message. Well, Pastor Marty, I don't know how to share the gospel with other people. Funny enough, after we're done with the Bible series with the youth, we're going to close out this uh, school semester with how to share the gospel. Because we might know the gospel, but we might know, not know how to share it. And here's the thing. Here's, where, here's the best place to start. First, do you believe the gospel yourself? If you do, start there. Look, I may not do it perfectly, nor do I need to. But I know that when I was 14 years old, God got a hold of my life at a weekend youth event that was seemingly insignificant at the time. I kind of felt obligated to be there. My dad was a part of that church. I was not going to that church, but some of the youth kids at a dinner that we went to, it was actually at the Jacob's house. Uh, uh, they invited us to this youth event, and I was like, whatever, I'll go. I don't care. Just get me there as long as there's free food. But here's the thing, at that youth event that seemed so insignificant to me as a 14-year-old kid, he wrecked me at that youth event. He flipped my world upside down through the faithful preaching of his word from some man that I don't even remember his name. I don't remember who the preacher was. Was it presented perfectly? Probably not. Did God use it? Absolutely. Changed my life, changed my brother's life. My brother and I were saved on the same day. Prayed prayers at the same time with two different people. He used it to breathe life into my dead soul, tainted by sin, and caused in me a belief in him that set me on a new path in life. It's the reason I'm standing here today, because when I was 14, some guy I don't remember was faithful to the word, preached the gospel, didn't do it perfectly, but God used it. And so here's the thing, that belief now that I can't thoroughly explain all the time, but that belief that I'm learning more and more about day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year, in the person of Jesus Christ is how I know that I know that I know that I am a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, and I have eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ. There it is. That's how to present the gospel message. Although I may not have all the answers... I know in the deepest part of who I am that I have the only answer that really truly matters. And that is that I have received the word of God which tells me to believe in Jesus Christ alone and that through him I have eternal life. That's enough. That's the sufficiency of the scriptures. It's not perfectly laid out. I didn't, I didn't riddle that, that little paragraph I just read to you. I didn't riddle that with intelligent-sounding theological statements and big words. I'm not discouraging any of you from digging into that type of stuff either. Study theology and dig into uh, uh, word study about Greek and Hebrew and stuff. Do all of that. But here's the thing. Trust me, I love that stuff as much as the next Bible nerd. But what I said apart from all of that intellectual sounding stuff, is still true. I didn't have to clean it up. I didn't have to make it sound intelligent. All I did was tell you what it is that happened in my life when I was 14, and now I know that I know that I know that I'm a saved person, that I'm a new creation, and that I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm still here, and so to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's it. That's the gospel message. 
So uh, Paul goes on to say, he said, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. So Paul was aware of the living aspect of God's word in the life of a believer. The writer of Hebrews puts it perfectly. I think this will be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, very famous passage of scripture. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It It cuts deep. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is a clear understanding from both Paul and the writer of Hebrews of the spiritual nature of God's word. The Bible we read is not just a collection of old stories or historical facts. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. God's word has inerrant life and effectiveness. Some translations use the word powerful. It's quick and powerful. No matter which word you choose, we have a clear reminder that although something may be alive, it can also be dormant. There's plenty of things in life that are living, but also dormant. But God's word is both living and effective. It's living and powerful. It's active. Paul himself claims that it works effectively in you who believe. And you who professed Jesus Christ, or professed faith in Jesus Christ, and you who are Christians. Funny enough, the Greek word, I know I just talked about this, the Greek word used here is energeho, which is to be, it's a word that means to be active, to work, or to do something. This book is not just a book that sits there and we read it and we have to do something to make it come, come alive. We derive the English word energy from that Greek word. So as a matter of fact, this word is often used elsewhere in scriptures when referencing God's power to effect salvation and spiritual growth even in believers. So the same work that God does to cause someone to believe and then also grow spiritually is the same work that this book, that the word of God can do in your life if you apply it, if you read it, if you allow it to do what it wants. Point being... We don't make the word of God come alive. Pastor Fred, Pastor Greg, myself, Sean, Sean Fenner, anybody who has preached on this stage has not stood up here and made these words come alive to you. The word of God is alive and gives life to us and anyone else who will receive it in faith as it did the Thessalonians Paul is writing to. So it's living and effective. But Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 also says that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So the writer of Hebrews' emphasis here is not on this slaying of the masses power that a sword in battle would would do, like a full-size sword. Rather, the emphasis is on the power of the word of God to penetrate and expose the inner heart of a man, just as a short dagger would do. A double-edged sword. It's not just sharp on one side. It's sharp on both. Here, let me, let me, let me read it this way. Uh, Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, a sword with two edges has no blunt side. It cuts both this way and that. And the revelation of God, or the revelation God uh, given us in the Holy Scripture is edge all over. There's no blunt side to it, essentially. It is alive in every part And in every part, keen to cut the conscience and wound the heart, depend upon it. 
There is not an unnecessary verse in the Bible, he says, nor a chapter which is useless. They're all quick and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. They will pierce to the deepest part of who you are if you allow it to do so, if you pick it up and actually read it and study it and meditate on it and apply it. God's word has a way of reaching us with surprising precision, and the Holy Spirit in turn works deeply in our hearts. I mean, have you ever sat underneath a sermon and thought, like, has this preacher been following me around the last week? Like, they're speaking directly to almost every single area of my life that I'm either struggling in or that I need encouragement in. Here's the thing. That's not merely just a human message. That's not just coincidental. That's the sharpness of the word of God delivering the message in all the right places. So no wonder the apostle Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were so grateful to God for the people of Thessalonica. They received that word. But in its proper context, they understood it to be living, active, and effective And that's what completely and radically changed their lives forever. Now, for the final two points of this sermon, I want to look at the two different responses then to this message, to the Word of God. From our passage specifically, I want to look at these, and then what we'll do is we'll draw some things things that we can practically take away uh, from our time together. So we've clearly seen in Paul's letter that point number two, acceptance of God's Word led to godliness and ultimately suffering. Acceptance of God's word led to godliness and ultimately suffering. So again, going back to verse 13, just so we're understanding what the word of God is, this is why we constantly thank God, Paul says, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country. So I don't know if you've noticed this before, but there seems to be an overarching theme to this fundamental Christian ethics that Paul seems to hit on. He seems to allude to quite a bit throughout many of his letters, and that's the word or the action, I guess I should say, imitation. Paul himself makes quite a bold statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, that the church ought to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So Paul was adamant on modeling his behavior after Christ. Therefore, anyone who would follow him and imitate him would ultimately display and model Jesus-like behavior. That's a bold statement to make, that, hey, if you imitate me, you'll look more like Jesus. And so we see something a little similar here in this letter, not only here in this passage, but earlier in the letter, Paul had commended the church in Thessalonica for their imitation of himself, Silvanus, and Timothy when, when they did what? He said when they welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe persecution. That's uh, chapter 1, verse 6. And he even goes on then to commend them once again for becoming an example themselves. 
to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, as well in every place that their faith in God had gone out. Verse 7 of chapter 1. But here's the thing. In, in verse 14 of our passage, we see one of the main evidences of their acceptance of the word of God, and that being godliness. Well, godliness how? I didn't see that word in that passage. How? By way of standing firm and enduring persecution and suffering. This is something that's going to be brought up. Fred and I were just talking about this. Almost every week, it seems like Paul is bringing up again that they are suffering, that they are appointed to suffering, that they suffered, that they were persecuted. So it's something to take note of. But that's an example of them displaying godliness by acceptance of the word of God. However, we see that this is not a standalone or isolated event for the church of Thessalonica. This was not a unique experience to just this church. Paul says that they became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country. So Paul is comparing their suffering to the persecution of the church in Judea who also suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. And Paul would know all about this. Why? Because he was one of the ones being persecuted? Not in Judea. See, back then, Paul himself was one of the ones involved in a lot of these attacks and persecutions on the early church. Remember, before Paul's conversion, he was one of the leading uh, religious leaders persecuting the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 8, Galatians chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1. Paul alludes to himself as someone who persecuted the church. And when he's referring to that, he's referring to the church in Judea. And we know from Acts chapter 17, this is where we kicked off this series, that similar persecution was happening to the Thessalonians. I would even encourage you to go back and reread that on your own time as we go throughout this letter. Just refresh your memory on why it is that Paul is writing to these people and what, how did he establish this church and what was kind of the timeline of him starting the church, being with the church, and then ultimately having to leave the church. We know that some of the leaders in the synagogue, Acts chapter 17, out of jealousy were trying to attack and kill Paul. They failed to catch him, but ultimately what they did is they went into the house of Jason, right, where Paul was staying. They ransacked his home and then they drug him and a bunch of the other men out before the city authorities, and it goes on to tell us that Paul did manage to escape all the way to Berea, where he was once again followed by the Jewish persecutors, the Jewish people, which then forced him to leave Macedonia altogether, where he ended up in Athens, Greece. You can read about that in Acts chapter 17. Seriously, I encourage you to read that as often as we're in this book week by week. It might be a good refresher to kind of keep some of the contextual stuff that Paul is alluding to in this letter. But all of that to say, all of this effort to remove Paul from the picture in Acts chapter 17, and yet we still have this group remaining in Thessalonica who are imitators of Paul. So they got rid of Paul, but there's still a bunch of people left behind that are basically a bunch of other Pauls. So it seems likely then that these same individuals who wanted Paul dead would have continued to oppose the church that Paul himself planted and left behind. We know this to be true based on these two letters that we have, that this is why they were, they were suffering persecution. And this is the point. When we accept the truth of God's word, 
It is alive and effective, as we learned in the first point. And it reveals, it sharpens, it convicts, it encourages, and it changes things in us. Why? In order to make us more like Christ. So what do we expect is going to happen? Suddenly, everyone around us is just going to love us, right? Everyone wants to be around us. Everyone wants to hear what we have to say about this life-changing work of the gospel. Not to jump ahead, but Paul even says to these believers in chapter 3 that they sent Timothy to this church to strengthen and encourage them concerning their faith so that no one in the church would be shaken by all of these afflictions. He was concerned about their well-being. Clearly, things weren't going well for them now that they had accepted the word of God and displayed godliness. And then they received persecution in return to that and remained steadfast, just as the churches in Judea did. So Paul sends Timothy ahead to, to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. He says that they know, the church in Thessalonica, they know that they were appointed to this. It's almost a guarantee. And guess who else warned against such things? Jesus Christ himself makes the exact same claim in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. I think this will be on the screen. It says this, Jesus Christ says this, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. I'm trying to think of the church in Thessalonica here. I'm trying to think of Christians around the world today that are being persecuted. And Jesus reminding them constantly, yeah, if they hate you, remember, they hated me first. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Jesus says, you accept the word of God. You begin to imitate me. It's a guarantee that you will suffer, that you will be persecuted. And that looks differently for different seasons of life and for different areas. But before I, I, I kind of go into that a little bit, Jesus continues in chapter 16 to explain everything that would take place in the early church. Everything that would take place or that was taking place in Thessalonica, Jesus talked about. And everything we experience across the world today, Jesus talked about. So John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, I'll give you a little blip of what he, he talked about, a little glimpse into it. He says this, John chapter 16, verse 1, he said, I've, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. Kind of like what Paul did with Timothy. Hey, I'm going to send Timothy to remind you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to keep you from stumbling. Jesus said the same thing. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. What is, what's going to happen if we follow you, Jesus? What's going to happen if we accept your word? Well, they're going to ban you from the synagogues. That sounds familiar. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me, but I have told you these things so that when the time comes, you will remember that I told them to you. Jesus promises at the end of this chapter, he promises that we will have trouble in this world, but he doesn't just leave it there. He says, but also, hey, be courageous because I've already overcome the world. 
So although the world is gonna reject you and hate you and persecute you and you're gonna suffer for my name's sake and for acceptance of my word, Church of Thessalonica, Christians around the world today, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, although that's gonna happen, be encouraged, be courageous, be bold in your faith because I've already overcome the world. And it was, it's funny, it was brought to my attention actually by Pastor Greg when uh, the three of us, Fred, Greg, and I, we were reading through this letter and praying together one morning. Uh, Greg mentioned the, the encouragement that we must all have in the fact that we are not in any way facing the same persecution and suffering as the Thessalonians or the early church. I mean, at least not yet. I don't know if we'll ever experience that same type of suffering and persecution as they have. I don't know if there'll ever be a point where we're being dragged from our homes and executed. Maybe. There are Christians that are experiencing that now across the globe. So here's the thing. And I hate saying this because I don't, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not that no one here has suffered or been persecuted in some way, shape, or form for their faith. In fact, I would hope that some of you have been, because that shows that you're, you're walking your, your, your faith out, you're living your faith out. But we have to realize that we aren't being dragged from our homes and executed. We're not. We're not having to hide out. We need to recognize where we are in society here at Redemption Church. I'm not talking about any other churches in this area. I'm talking about us here right now. And I'm preaching to myself more than ever here. Okay? I have to remind myself of this constantly. Think about it. We're able to openly have church, small groups, youth group, ministry outreach events, week in and week out, and not anybody says a word about it. And my point in bringing this up is not in any way to shame or condemn us for not suffering the same way that these Christians did. But what I loved about what Pastor Egg was alluding to is he said we need to recognize almost our, our position of privilege of where we live and when we live and be so grateful for it, but also take advantage of it. And what do I mean by that? Let me put it this way. If acceptance of God's word led to godliness and ultimately suffering for the church in Thessalonica and our suffering and persecution is minimal or seemingly non-existent at times, how much more so should we be striving for godliness here when we don't have to worry about pushback in any way, shape, or form? Strive for godliness. We ought to be using our lack of persecution and suffering where we sit right now. We ought to use our freedom to be active for the kingdom. I mean, I'm getting fired up about this because we don't suffer anything for meeting here week in and week out. We come here and we stand and we sing praises to Jesus and, we, and we, we open this word of God that not everybody has access to. We have it in print form. We have it on our phones. We have it online. We have it on Wi-Fi. We have it on 5G. We have it read to us. We have it in different languages. And yet we sit here and we take advantage of the fact that we are able to be exposed to all of this and not strive for godliness in any way, shape, or form when we have access to all of this without suffering. And yet this church, this church was facing pushback and suffering and persecution on a regular basis. And yet they, they were striving for godliness 
day in and day out, more and more and more. There's a book in the back. I think it's still back there. If not, uh, you can purchase it. It's pretty cheap. Uh, Matt Chandler's Take Heart. That's what that book is all about. The fact that the church does seem to grow the most and be the most active when it's on, when it's, uh, uh, on the margins, when it's, when it's being persecuted, when it's not the main thing. All of that to say, the first response to the word of God that we see here is acceptance. And that acceptance for the church in Thessalonica led to godliness and ultimately suffering. So whether or not our godliness leads to suffering, let's make sure that our acceptance of the word of God is leading to godliness first and foremost. But here's the thing. With acceptance for some comes rejection for others. So that's point number three and lastly this morning is that rejection of God's word led to hostility and ultimately wrath. Rejection of God's word led to hostility and ultimately wrath. So again, in verse 14, he said, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have suffered the same things from the people of your own country. Then he concludes, Just as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. So allow me, first and foremost, before we really dive into this, allow me to dispel any concerns here about Paul's harsh words towards the Jewish people. Because you can read this and think, man, he's really going in on the Jews here. He is, in fact, speaking directly to the Jewish opposition of the gospel message here in Thessalonica, both in Judea and, and, and with this church. We know, though, that Paul and other areas of Scripture, if you read Romans 9 through 11, for example, clearly identified with and expressed his concern for his fellow countrymen. Yes, Paul was a Jew. Okay, so before you're like, man, Paul really went in on the Jews, you have to remember he himself is a Jew. We even see evidence of the fact that when Paul was on his various missionary journeys in hopes of reaching the Gentile people, he's known as the mission, missionary to the Gentiles, he typically would go first to the synagogue in each city he visited. This can be easily backed up by Scripture. We even have in his own words in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel of Jesus Christ is first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And then he reiterates in the 11th chapter of Romans that he, desi he desired any success of his ministry to the Gentiles might, and these are his own words, make his own people jealous and ultimately save some of them. So he was hoping that by winning Gentiles to Christ, the Jews would be like, yo, why are all these Gentile peoples all of a sudden believing in this person and this church is growing? What's up with all of that? We want those Gentiles for ourselves, which I'll get into in a minute. And maybe they get jealous, so they start inquiring about what it is that these Gentile people are believing in, and then ultimately they come to know Christ. That was Paul's hope for his own people. 
Now, Romans chapter 11, Romans, Romans in general, obviously, is an entire sermon or sermon series on its own. Romans chapter 11, it, there's a lot more there. I'm just going to leave that there. But all that to say is that Paul desires greatly that his people, that the Jewish people accept and believe the word of God. He's not just picking on them because he wants to. However, Paul also remembers, in light of all of that effort to want the Jewish people to accept the gospel, he remembers that on almost every occasion when he would deliver the message of the gospel in those synagogues, he eventually faced great opposition from the Jewish people. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus. It was always opposition from the Jewish people when he would preach the gospel message in the synagogues. It all turned out the same. Paul would either be chased out of the city, imprisoned, and on more than one occasion, he was to be put to death. There was constantly a mixed reaction or response amongst the Jews regarding the gospel. Some believed, some, many rejected. I mean, even his recollection of the death of Jesus Christ, as we read about in this passage, was that of rejection by Jesus' own people, the Jews, knowing full well, too, that there were other parties at play, the Roman government being one of them, okay? But he includes that not only did many of them reject and ultimately kill Jesus, but they even were killing prophets of the Old Testament. This was a recurring theme amongst the Jewish people that Paul is pointing out here. The prophets of the Old Testament would call Israel to repent and turn back to God only for the people of Judah and Israel to either socially shun them or even try to put them to death. So this is nothing new here. And once again, we had warning from Jesus that such things would take place. He warned that the church would be persecuted. These are Jesus' words, persecuted the way the Old Testament prophets were. And Jesus, the Messiah himself, was rejected and killed by his own people. And now they are persecuting the church of that day. Remember, as Paul once did himself. He was a part of that. He says they displease and are hostile to everyone. So a couple of things. There's comfort for the church in Thessalonica, knowing that these persecuted believers, the ones facing this persecution... They're the ones that are doing what's right in God's eyes. That they're the ones pleasing to God. Because I would argue that this was probably necessary for them to remember, at least on occasion, that because they were being persecuted by religious people, they might start to wonder to themselves, you know, maybe those religious people that are persecuting us, maybe they are in fact, right. Maybe they are right because Jesus promised that this would happen. But maybe being under persecution by religious leaders of that day, they're thinking, we're nobodies. These are religious people who know it all and they're persecuting us. Maybe they, maybe they have something right. Maybe they're, they're correct in treating us the way that they are. Maybe we should turn and heed to what it is that they want us to turn to. Remember John chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus said, In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. 
That was Paul's belief as a persecutor of the church before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And yet we understand that these people doing, who rejected the word and are persecuting were displeasing to God and hostile to everyone because they were keeping them, Paul and the believers, from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Okay, so here Paul revealed what offended the religious persecutors so much. And it's, it's this exclusive attitude of these religious leaders, of these Jews, that Paul says filled up their sins to the limit. So the Jews' opposition was not due to the fact that these believers were hoping to win the Gentiles. That was not what they were offended by. The Jews themselves were actively engaged in this period of history, attempting to what's called proselyte the Gentiles, to convert them to Judaism. They were doing the same things. But their real issue was due to the fact that the Christian missionaries like Paul were offering salvation to Gentiles without demanding that they become Jews first. That was their issue. And side note, that has not gone away today. And I'm not talking about Judaism. I'm talking about Christianity. It's crept its way even into the Christian church. You know, in order to be a Christian, yeah, you have to believe Jesus, but you also have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to dress a certain way and act a certain way. Although I understand those things in their place, but we almost put those in the same category as belief in Jesus Christ for eternal life. No, in order to be a Christian, in order to be a Christian, one must profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and surrender your life to him, period. That's it. That makes you a Christian. Now, hopefully from that, you start to live out your salvation and you start to read his word and maybe you get convicted and your life does change and, and you, you start doing certain things different ways and, and works follow your faith. But it's faith in Christ that is necessary to become a Christian. That's it. There is no religious process. There's no sacraments. There's no rituals necessary for eternal life to be gained. Jesus Christ, belief in him is the only way. That's it. And that was what Paul and the Thessalonian church got right. But that's also why they were being persecuted, was for that message. And what's Paul's response to all of that? He says, as a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. So this rejection to the word of God and the proclamation of it is just the conclusion then of a long history of sin with the Jewish people. That's what Paul is alluding to here. It's been this way from the time of the prophets in the Old Testament. One of the commentaries that I was reading about this passage, it's by Gene L. Green, just to give him credit for this. He puts it this way in his commentary on this specific letter, this passage. He says that this statement that Paul makes about the Jewish people, that they're filling up their sins to the limit and that wrath has overtaken them at last, this statement echoes a theme that appears over and again in biblical and extra-biblical literature, namely that the sins of a people come up to their complete measure before divine judgment is then poured out. We see this time and time and time again in the scriptures. You want a good place to start? Just read the Old Testament. This is like on loop. It's like a broken record. The people turn to God, 
say, we're going to serve him, we're going to do what he says, and then they slowly drift to the point where they're doing what's right in their own eyes, and they're living in sin, and they've rejected God, and God sends a prophet to then say, hey, turn, or God's going to punish you, and then more often than not, they either turn and then quickly turn back, or they don't turn, and then God punishes them. His wrath is poured out. Divine judgment is given. And such rejection to the word of God rightly deserves God's wrath. Let me throw that out there. That seems a little harsh that just rejecting a message would mean that I'm under the wrath of God. Well, if it's God's word that we're rejecting, then it's God's wrath that we ought to face. I think that that's fair. We understand this especially if we're born-again believers. This is something that really hits home to us. For we were once under God's wrath in rejection to his word, and yet we repented and we professed Christ, and then we were saved. Praise God. We're no longer under his wrath. And Paul no doubt felt this upon his reflection of their rejection to the word of God and the persecution of the church. He says, and wrath has overtaken them at last. Now, Paul's anger and frustration is simply the anger and frustration of a man with his own people. Remember, these are Jews. These are, this, is, this is Paul's own nation. I don't know if you feel this sometimes in America. I'm not making comparisons to the Jewish people in, in the Bible in America. But think about it as your own people. Even, let's get rid of America. Let's just think about your own family members that constantly reject the word of God or make light of it or, or make fun of you for what it is that you believe. Like your anger and frustration and your heartbreak too towards them is the same as what Paul's experiencing here. He's like, these are my people. This is, these are the people that I came from, that I grew up in, and they're constantly rejecting the word of God and persecuting the church. That's got to cause so much anger and frustration in Paul because this is his own people, his own nation. He's very much a part of them and used to be with them. He knows their fate. And I'm sure that breaks his heart. Now, due to the tense of the verb used, he says, wrath has overtaken them at last. This has led to Bible scholars and different commentators to speculate what he meant by this. You know, what, what moment of wrath is he referring to here? Is he talking about a specific time in history? There have been many times during Paul's life that the Jewish people have been humiliated or suffered under oppression. Was that it? Possibly. But most have concluded that this same verb tense is often used to refer with certainty a prophetic future. So elsewhere in scripture, when that verbiage is used, it's, it's talking about almost with certainty about something that's going to happen in the future, an event which is sure to take place. And we know, based upon what God's word says, that there is a day when all who have rejected the word of God will meet the wrath of God at the final judgment. But regardless of which way you want to read this passage, Paul's assurance to the Thessalonians here is this. God will bring justice in the end. So while you're suffering persecution underneath these people, remember that God brings justice, that you've accepted God's word, you're displaying godliness, and although you're suffering, they've rejected. That's why they're hostile towards you, and that's why their, their position under God is ultimately wrath. Paul comforted the Thessalonians by assuring them that God would indeed take care of their persecutors once and for all. Because when Christians forget that, 
when we forget that God will indeed take care of those who persecute us, what happens? The church often ends up disgracing themselves by returning persecution for persecution. We feel like we need to fight back. We feel like we need to say something or we need to stand our ground in terms of like push, pushing back on what the world tries to, uh, when the world persecutes us or says things about us or demeans us or whatever, we feel like we have to say something and we have to defend ourselves and we have to do all this, forgetting the fact that God brings justice in the end. So pray for your enemies, love them, and leave it at that. So again, although we may not face hostility from those in our day-to-day lives, because some of you may be hearing this and saying like, honestly, Marty, even the people in my own circle of influence, the ones that don't believe what I believe, they're pretty cool with me. They're not hostile towards me, so this doesn't really apply. I would say this. Although we may not face hostility from those in our day-to-day lives, family, friends, coworkers, whatever, the truth of the matter remains the same, that those who reject the word of God ultimately are under God's wrath. Whether they're hostile to you or not, the fact is rejection of God's word, even if you do it in a peace and loving way, you're still under God's wrath because you ultimately rejected his word. And for that reason alone, we ought to pray for those who do not know and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have not accepted this message of the gospel. This was the whole reason for Paul doing what he did. We now understand why Paul was so thankful to God that the people of Thessalonica received the word of God as just that, the word of God, not merely a human message. And that that acceptance of God's word led to godliness in the manner of imitating those who came before them and enduring suffering and persecution, but also that the rejection of God's word led to hostility and ultimately wrath. And just as a sobering reminder to ourselves, I would like to end here, and I think this will be on the screen. Paul, in another one of his letters to the church in Ephesus, he says this. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, and you, he's talking to believers here, so I'm going to say this as if I'm talking to you. If you're a believer here this morning, he reminds them, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. That's who you walked with. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Paul includes himself in that. Carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We did things our way. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Thank God for verse four. Because up until that point, that's kind of a discouraging thing. Hey, remember all of which you came from? But here's the thing. God didn't leave you there. For some reason or another, when I was 14, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made me alive with Christ, even though I was dead in my trespasses, I'm saved by grace. If you want to know how to present the gospel, just read verse four and five. 
over and over and over again. That God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, for who? For children who were under his wrath. For children who walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the powers of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our sins. You were saved by grace. This is the word of God. So welcome it, receive it, and believe it.